You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. This is Meditation and Attachment. An attachment deepening your practice. It's March 25th, 2020 at 7.35 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And tonight the topic is uh, compassion practice for friends and family. Um, I talked about this a little bit before, but the, the categories that I use really are categories that uh, Sayadaw uh, Indica uses. Um, they've been adapted by him for the West. Uh, the traditional categories are self, uh, teachers, mentors, benefactors, friends and family, neutral people, difficult people, and all sentient beings. Um, one of the things that differs about uh, practicing in, in the East and as opposed to the West, now, I, whenever I do this, of course, I'm talking about groups of people. And when you when you talk about groups versus individuals, you understand that to be a member of the group, you have to have all of the qualities of the group uh, so that it isn't useful to talk about individuals except individual exceptions to the group because it, uh, just from a conversational uh, point of view, to be in the group, you have to have all of the qualities. So when I compare the East to the West, I'm talking about uh, this group of qualities and um, there's often distinctions, individual uh, uh, distinctions to that. But in the East, uh, the central identification is not as the individual, not the, you know, the rugged individual that we sort of have over here. It's the family group. And so the Asian practice was originally designed to separate you from the group identity and to come into a self-identity and then to be able to practice from that place of self-identity. And so the, uh, the way that the traditional practice is organized is organized around this first of withdrawing you, uh, your main sense of identification from the family group to yourself and then developing practice around that, that identity. Um, in the West, of course, we're already um, way over in the other direction, totally self-identified. Uh, many of us don't even identify with the family system that we come from. We, are, we see ourselves as separate from that. And our families tend to be more fluid in a way than, than in the East. Uh, even in the way that the names are written, the last name is often first, depending on the, the country, and then the first name is second. Here, that's never the case, really. So in the way that he practices, the first group that he has you practice for is, is a, an easy person. If we uh, related that to the Asian system of practice, that would be the teacher, mentor, benefactor group. Uh, in our country, we don't revere teachers. Um, mentoring is uh, not so ordinary as a, as a way of uh, being in the world. Uh, and benefactors, uh, because of the nature of the way that we consider generosity and they consider generosity in, in Asia, that's also different. 
you're taught there to revere those uh, social positions in here that I don't think is necessarily the case. Certainly, if you look at how we pay teachers, we, we don't uh, revere them that much. Um, we don't revere the, the, the institutions of teaching that much. Um, philanthropy in this country is not uh, at the ordinary daily level that it is in Buddhist countries in Asia. One of the things that strikes you when you go there is in the morning, uh, the, the, uh, really everywhere you go, uh, Buddha uh, uh, monks, and nuns on alms rounds collecting food, whatever it is that people are offering. And they're just really walking down the street and everyone is coming out of their houses and participating in this uh, community-wide uh, system of generosity that they have quite developed there that we, we don't have at all here. Um, so, uh, he goes with easy as the first group. Somebody who, when you just think of them, the mind naturally inclines for that. So we're talking about compassion practice. Compassion practice is uh, the willingness to hold the suffering experience of someone else and to help them in some way that if you're able to do that. In Buddhist thought, it's narrowly focused on suffering. In the West, it's uh, compassion means the sharing of all feeling states, but we don't focus on the positive feeling states in compassion practice. We focus on the suffering experience of someone else. And really when we talk about relieving that, we're talking about uh, an emotional regulation experience mainly. So uh, in the practice at the monastery in Pinur Luin, the, uh, we spend, he recommends that you, you spend an hour on each person that you know and see whether or not you have the capacity to easily find the mind state of compassion holding each of those people and that you develop a short list of people that you find are easy to find a compassionate mind state for so that when you're out and about in practicing in life, you need to shift the afflictive mind state into a compassionate mind state. All you really have to do is think of the person and the mind state shifts. Um, <clears throat> so typically it's not the people that are closest to you. We build these working models of people, uh, Christian. Uh, between the four Brahma Viharas are easy people likely to be the same for all of them or do we kind of have to investigate separately for each one? I would investigate separately for each one. You, you can do the same routine, make, you know, if, you're, if you like to write things, make a, a list of everyone you know and then just spend an hour sitting with each person on the list um, and making a notation after the hour whether or not uh, you were easily able to come into the particular mind state that you are looking for. Each of the mind states is different. Uh, loving kindness practice, metta practice uh, is meant to be an antidote for anger. Compassion practice is meant to be an antidote for cruelty. Uh, sympathetic joy practice is meant to be an antidote for uh, um, 
envy and jealousy and equanimity is meant to be uh, an antidote to craving, aversion, and unconsciousness. Because the working models that we build for each person is different, they may uh, include or not include those uh, aspects. And so you're really looking for somebody who, when you think of them, the mind state of compassion is uh, either already built in or is, uh, lends itself easily to the consideration of that person. And it might be different depending on which mind state you're looking to develop. It's not really generic in that sense. Uh, each, the way that we uh, as human beings are able to track all of these different relationships is that we create a working model of them. And then when we encounter them or we think of them, we activate the gist of that working model, which then plays out in, in the experience of the, the body. Uh, one of the reasons that you wanna focus intentionally on developing positive states uh, as opposed to just undermining or weakening negative states is that the systems are different. It isn't, uh, for instance, an outcome of eliminating negative mind states that the capacity for po positive uh, mind states is increased. You have to do them separately. Uh, and it's important to be able to develop that, uh, you know, a really tremendous capacity for these positive mind states. In interpersonal relationships, of course, knowing somebody who has a tremendous capacity for compassion is a good thing because if you need emotional regulation from somebody, they're a good person to go to because they have the capacity to help you. Even if your uh, distress is intense or really intense, they, if they have the bandwidth, the capacity to hold really intense experiences, they can hold that experience for you and help you come back into emotional balance. This is especially important around exploring things that have real meaning because uh, you could get so easily discombobulated by going for something that has a lot of value. And that if you have somebody available to you that has a tremendous capacity for compassion, then you can really risk going for it. Because you know, even if you get totally knocked sideways, somebody is there and they can catch you. Uh, conversely, of course, if uh, you're uh, involved with people and they go out and they explore and come back and they're really out of whack and it exceeds your capacity for holding that experience, either you will withdraw from that, withdraw from helping them or you'll attempt to limit them so that they don't come at you in, in such a dysregulated state. Uh, that you can't help them and they, and that you're likely to be dysregulated by that. So as you uh, uh, pull together these uh, relationships that you support yourself with, it's a good idea to have that in mind so that you really are free to explore in the way that you want to. John? So George, I'm, I'm kind of thinking because, you know, a lot of times we talk about compassion and, and being there and we talk a lot about secure attachment. We talk a lot just about attachment and what that looks like. Um, what would you suggest for some people that, you know, you can be the well of compassion, right? But yet they have no way of like reciprocating or having any value in that, let, let's say a narcissistic relationship, right? where you have someone that's just drawing that from you, 
Um, how would you, how would you show compassion or create boundaries around that kind of relationship? I really think of it as energy flows and understanding the position of the relationship uh, and how much energy you have available to do that. We all have limited amounts of energy and part of the understanding and practicing compassion is to know when you have it to give and when you don't have it to give and when you don't have it to give, uh, step back into a, a sympathetic response rather than an empathetic, compassionate response. Um, but also to organize your relationships. Um, I like to use the Dunbar framework, A relationships, B relationships, people that you tell everything to and that you support. Um, he, his research uh, showed that people who put 60% of their relational energy into their A's and B's and 40% into their C's and D's were happier. Uh, but that it was uncommon for that to be the case. What he said was most common in adults in the West is that you have one A, no Bs, Cs and Ds, and you put 40% of the relational energy into the A and 60% into the Cs and Ds. If you had uh, somebody who was not reciprocating, then they by nature could not be an A or a B in this formulation. They would have to be a C or a D and then you would be conscious of flowing C or D levels of energy into the relationship and not get pulled into flowing uh, A or B levels of energy. In. As long as you keep the energy flows in the relationship that in a way that corresponds actually to the, the value of the relationship to you, then the resentments don't arise. But as soon as you're flowing too much energy into the relationship for what it really is in terms of its ability to support you, then the, the resentment begins to arise. Yeah, actually that does make a whole lot of sense. So it seems like the AB, the intimacy of those relationships can lead into like romance, right? We see that a lot with romantic partnerships right. and, um, and then C's and D's are more like friendship acquaintance. Right, or friends and family, the category of friends and family that we're talking about tonight. Um, it's funny, um, the, when I was, you know, I have friends in Myanmar and, and they, they live in these extended family groups. Um, aunts and uncles are around, uh, grandparents if they're living the, um, are around, the parents are around, the children are around. So it's, you know, three, four, five generations of people together. And there's a, a real fluid exchange of support and, and uh, tasks that need to be done. Um, my friend uh, at the time um, was living in Yangon and his parents were living uh, in the village uh, where he grew up. But if they needed care, some of the relatives would just show up. I mean, it wasn't even so much explicit, but in the, the constant dialogue of the family, we, people would know what everybody else was doing and know what different levels of support they would need. And people just shuffled in, in a way that seemed pretty uh, seamless. Um, he's, he was the oldest son. And when his father was injured at work, he took over the head of the family role and, and everybody adjusted to that. And it was very, uh, also very easy. 
and what I noticed about it, there, there was a real naturalness to it. Everybody was just how they were. Uh, and and the, the, the range of it, uh, acceptance about how people could be in the family is quite broad. Um, I, I, I don't know um, really uh, so much beyond my own family experience, but that wasn't how it was, how I grew up. We, we, we were assigned roles and we had to fulfill them. And there was really not much leeway. Christian? Uh, does it appear that that kind of family system might support secure attachment better than uh, like in the West? Um, I have the sense that it does um, because uh, uh, so you run to mommy and she's irritated and then you run two feet to your aunt who picks you up, you know? It's that, that ease. There's lots of choices. Uh, and uh, even though materially it's the, they're not nearly as well off as we are in the West, one of the things about affluence is that it creates the possibility of uh, a, a less collaborative living experience. Um, and so, you know, we are all living in our own spaces. Um, the nuclear family in particular uh, relies and puts a lot of burden on individuals to provide all of the care, whereas in, in more uh, alloparenting is the term we use in the West for this, the, the shared responsibility of the of the childcare um, makes the more options available to the child so that they can have a range of expression. Um, they're not so dependent on one particular reaction to it. Um, so this line of who you tell everything, people you tell everything to, and, People you say, tell some things to, how easy is that for you to do? And do you have, are you mindfully aware of who's who in your life? And do you, are you able to monitor the flow of information in a way that's comfortable? Uh, often when we overshare uh, or risk uh, confidences with people that we're not sure of, there's, there's a fearfulness that comes up in response to that. Um, and you uh, are the one who regulates that. So can you easily uh, restrict information only to people that you uh, trust will take care of you in a good way and be easy about it? The, the other side of that, of course, is can you freely exchange uh, information? Can you really reveal yourself to people that have proven, you're, proven to be safe for you without also a residual uh, fearfulness that can come up or a, a, an aftermath of fearfulness that comes up. Um, we want in the closest relationships to us to be able to be free in the expression of our experience and to be complete uh, and also to have an expectation that it will be well received. Uh, and we want to really be able to test that people are trustworthy in that way. And with C's and D's, we don't want to flow too much information or be too vulnerable in those relationships until people have actually demonstrated their trustworthiness and also to be easy about that. So that you're, 
you have a, you know, you're mindfully aware of what you're going to share and what you're not going to share, and you're at ease with uh, your willingness to do that. Now, often people are interested in soliciting more uh, than you want to share with them, and sometimes you can feel a sense of pressure, or uh, sometimes you can uh, almost be lulled into a sense of safety uh, in the moment that allows you to to overshare and then regret it later. And so we really want to be free to uh, express ourselves in the way that we want to, but not uh, be um, uh, putting ourselves in a position where we, we uh, feel unsafe uh, later. Uh, not everybody is going to be a, a, an A or a B. And so uh, we wanna be clear about uh, people's uh, position and uh, share accordingly. Um, toward the secure end of the spectrum, of course, this is something that's just natural and, and built into the system and built into the experience of a lifetime. You don't uh, reveal stuff that you don't want to and you're easy about it. In insecure attachment systems, um, that is often not so well established and so it's something to really begin to pay attention to. You do want to develop um, C's and D's because everything is impermanent, as you know, and A's and B's come and go. And so you have to have some place to draw new ones in. One of the things about adult relationships is that uh, we are, uh, by the time you're an adult, those very few spots that you have get full, and then you're not actually available uh, immediately for uh, increasing um, close relationships. So you, you wanna, but you do also want to have possibilities available to you. Uh, and uh, that's what the, the C group really is. Um, so um, how do you organize that, right? Dunbar, when he did his research, said that people who like to have an A relationship have one relation, you know, have space for one typically. An A relationship, somebody you take care of on a daily or every other day basis and who you tell everything to. The main difference between an A relationship and a B relationship is the frequency of the care, but also in an A relationship, the relationship demands take precedence over each person's individual exploration needs. So you're, you're needing to run by your partner and negotiate the use of time, energy, and resources to support your exploration, but not at the expense of the relationship. Whereas in a B relationship, you really don't need to clear it all with your Bs in order to make a decision about your personal exploration. There's no uh, reason other than resources that you wouldn't have more than one a relationship, and some people like to have more than one, and so they do. The range of, of, of B relationships is two to five in the research, depending on how much energy you have for it and what the other demands are. Um, so you're seeing somebody once a week or so, once or twice a week, or at least that in two weeks. How many of those relationships do you have? time, energy, and resources for 
and still have the resources that you need to explore in a way that provides meaning. Really what we're talking about is this, this support of um, our exploration. But when you're engaged in collaborative relationships, that means that the people that you enlist to support you on your exploration, you are uh, in most cases agreeing to support their exploration. So you have to pay attention to that. And that's where this practice of compassion really comes in. You want to be able to hold a compassionate space for somebody so that they can really risk going for things that they want to go for. And if they become distraught or, or even elated, you have space for that. You can hold the space with them. That you can help them to emotionally regulate and balance. Of course, we're not suggesting that you need to do their exploration for them. They need to do their own exploration, but they need to be emotionally regulated enough that they can do it. If you look at this uh, from the attachment perspective, when somebody uh, feels uh, threatened, uh, the attachment mechanism goes off. And as it goes off, it shuts down the exploration mechanism. And so you come rushing back to your attachment figures uh, with the, the desire for protection and soothing. And then your attachment figures provide this protection and this soothing until you're regulated again. When you're regulated again, of course, the attachment mechanism turns off and the uh, exploration mechanism turns back on. And then uh, hopefully they encourage you to go back out and explore some more. There's this flow of, of connection and exploration, connection and exploration. Um, so the skill set of compassion is to be able to attune to somebody, to be able to empathetically connect to them, and then to bring your capacity to, of emotional regulation to their uh, distress uh, with the intention of helping them come back into emotional balance so the attachment mechanism can shut off and then they're free to uh, explore. Um, the collaboration system is usually still online. Um, uh, certainly in, in a secure constellation, the capacity to collaborate in, in a compassionate exchange with somebody would be the, the avenue that you're coming at. You're collaborating with them in this empathetic exchange, which is going to help them emotionally regulate. And if you come to somebody, that's the same. Whereas the attachment mechanism shuts off the exploration mechanism, it doesn't shut down the collaborative system. And the regulation really comes from this collaborating exchange of, of holding space with each other. And that because you're the regulated one, helping the dysregulated one come into balance. It's important to pay attention to this uh, idea that you're, if you're providing a compassionate response to somebody, you're the one who's regulated and they're the ones who are dysregulated. And you need to monitor that closely because if you find that their dysregulation is dysregulating you, then you no longer have the capacity to hold the compassionate window and you need to back out of it into 
a sympathetic response until you can come back into balance and then be able to respond um, in a compassionate way again, in an empathetic way again. You don't want to uh, fail to disconnect in time so that you become dysregulated and, uh, and then neither one of you is able to hold the compassionate container for the other. And then you need to locate somebody else who has an even bigger capacity for compassion to regulate two people rather than just uh, the one person who came to you. So it's an incredible use to the people in your life that you're taking care of to really develop a tremendous capacity for compassion so that no matter what happens, they have this uh, space that they can come to to help them rebalance. And what that does for them, besides the, the balancing in the moment, is um, make it safer to take bigger risks in their exploration because they have somebody reliable that they can count on to help them. And then you uh, are also looking for somebody who has that tremendous capacity so that you also can take those risks. What happens, of course, when you don't have that available to you is that uh, in order to avoid having to tolerate the intolerable dysregulation, you begin to limit your exploration so that you don't become so dysregulated that you can't, through some auto-regulating strategy, come back into balance. The main uh, issues around uh, using auto-regulation or distraction to regulate yourself is that it's very inefficient and takes a lot of time and energy to do it. You could spend a half an hour with somebody who is capable of great compassion and be completely back in balance. And it could take days of auto-regulation or distraction to get you there. And so all of that energy that could then be used to explore is consumed by regulating the experience. And because it's so uneconomical, you begin to limit, uh, again, the, the risk-taking in your exploration. Maybe I should say, I don't mean uh, recklessly risking your life and limb. I mean, really going for something that would provide real meaning to you. Um, so that could be not getting out of a chair and reading uh, deeply into a subject that depends really on what your exploration is and what uh, you find meaning in. But you can, uh, limit your regular your uh, your exploration to the point that it actually doesn't provide enough meaning um, one of the things about uh, this human condition of course is that we're all uh, aging and we're all subject to decline to sickness and death and uh, the older you get, of course, uh, in some, in, in most cases, I would say uh, you have less energy available. And so you have to be judicious in how you use it. But if your habit is to limit your exploration and you're not providing yourself with enough meaning, uh, the aging process can become quite daunting, quite despairing, particularly as you notice yourself, as you uh, reach the end of old age, declining. It's just harder to get everything to happen. Your mind isn't as sharp. The body is painful. 
And so over and over again, emphasizing this need to really develop a robust social group that supports you. I, I uh, remember my grandmother despairing about the loss of her friends as she was reaching her 90s. And I said to her, you have lots of friends. And she said, oh, those people, I've only known them 10 years. I used to know people 70 years. And so uh, as you uh, maintain these relationships and the span of your life uh, increases uh, and you have these reference points into the, the past. Um, I know uh, and, in, and have occasional contact with people uh, that I've known since the 60s. Uh, and, uh, and all of those reference points are, are enlivened by those kinds of exchanges. So that attention to maintaining these relationships and um, uh, learning how uh, the other people need to be taken care of and then finding a, a sense of in, enjoyment and fulfillment in taking care of them with the understanding of course that you're uh, balancing these relationships so that they're collaborative and that they're re reciprocal. And so you have these people also taking care of you and that this is supporting that um, capacity to explore and, and find meaning. With compassion, the, there are discrete skills that can be developed. And so you just focus on developing them as you need to. The attunement piece is where you're able to uh, uh, place your attention on someone else, have them place their attention on you and hold the gaze of attunement. Um, at eight feet or so, there's not usually much emotional kickback from it. You can't really discern the subtleties of uh, facial expressions and emotional expression and, and certainly not track the movement of the iris, which is the most intimate. At about three, three feet, you can pick up the subtle emotional expressions in the face. So you have more information, which then uh, tends to create a bigger emotional kick. And then the, the most intimate, of course, is about a foot or so away. So you can watch that flow of information that comes from the changing and the fluctuation of the iris. And so uh, without really knowing that, you may be aware that you, you limit the distance that, uh, um, or that you limit the closeness that uh, people can come to you. Um, and so, uh, and the main reason for that, of course, is that there's an emotional uh, arising that comes from close attunement. And so uh, the beginning of this, skill development is to be able to emotionally regulate yourself in close proximity to other people, in that open uh, gaze with other people, the attunement with other people. The next is the capacity for an empathetic connection. There are four basic emotional experiences we want to be able to track our emotional reaction to the present moment, 
the self-generated emotion that we use to regulate that experience of the present moment. If there's a somaticized emotional experience that we can have good clarity between the present moment and the old stuff, and then the fourth one is the empathetic experience of other people. So you'll need to develop really good uh, clarity about the embodied emotional experience that you have. And also the cognitive side of that, which is to understand what the emotions are and how to manage them. An empathetic experience of someone else is, a, is a, an emotional presentation in the body, which is a facsimile of what the other person is experiencing. You can pick up, if you're empathetic, that emotional expression, whether you know the person well or not, or whether you're restricting information to them or not, that uh, empathetic experience is there in the body and you can detect it. This of course points to the attachment conditioning because depending on your attachment conditioning, you'll be able to do that easily or not so easily. And if you're uh, not able to really track and you don't really have much uh, emotional clarity, then this is one of the places that you need to work in order to develop your capacity for compassion. The better you are at regulating your own emotions in response to the empathetic uh, connection which happens, the greater the capacity of holding a compassionate space for somebody else will have. And if you can hold very intense emotions, then uh, you can hold the very intense emotional experience of someone else Usually the thing that uh, causes you to be overwhelmed is the empathetic emotional experience triggers a strong emotional response in yourself. And it's your own emotional reaction that becomes overwhelming and exceeds your capacity to hold the space. And so the body-mind is naturally inclined to disconnect from the compassionate exchange. <laughs> in order to regulate. Uh, part of this training is also to be sensitive to when the uh, experience of suffering hits you, that you don't just reflexively tune it out and pull into sympathy. Most people who are coming to you and seeking uh, 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 a compassionate response are coming and uh, seeking an empathetic experience. And if you simply reflexively reject them because uh, you don't want to have the experience of someone else's pain, they uh, will register that often as a, as a rejecting experience. And then that may uh, cause them to shut down their willingness to create that uh, exchange with you. And so you won't, you'll have lost uh, unconsciously the, 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 the uh, capacity to help somebody else because they, they no longer find you trustworthy to do it. Is that making sense? Now with the friends and family group, this is somebody that you're free not to be uh, too intimate with. Um, and the freer you are with it, the better balance you have. And the less, uh, I sometimes, uh, become fearful that I've, uh, I've revealed too much to somebody who I don't feel uh, safe enough with. And this is really 
that exchange um, that needs attention so that you, you're pretty good at staying in balance where you want to be. Um, and you're, you're good at uh, exploring when you do hand over something that needs a care and uh, trust that that's reflected back to you to, to value it and that, and that it's something that they're going to respect and take care of. Sometimes people keep family members in the A or B group and sometimes they don't. Um, in, the, in the West with most of the people that I work with, um, they don't keep family members in the A or B group, they're all C's and oftentimes they're D's because of the uh, difficulty of the experiences of their early life. Um, and a friend group, often friend groups include people that we work with or, 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 or neighbors, uh, people that we've met along the way that we're encouraging the relationship but it hasn't developed uh, to that point. So that's the group that we're gonna practice with tonight. Um, uh, see if you can think of somebody that uh, you would like to practice with. And then go ahead and take your meditation posture and we'll begin. So how did that go? Any uh, questions or comments? Christian? Uh, I settled into something pretty relaxing um, and I kept trying to sort of pump it up. But then at some point I found it really hard to, um, it's like, I, I like totally forgot where I was. I don't know if that means I was really concentrated or if, I, if the opposite. Um, probably the opposite. Uh, when you popped out, was it a, an altered state? Or, or was it more like distraction? Well, I wasn't distracted with anything. It was like, I was just kind of like cruising along and mellow. <laughs> so maybe like a little bit of an altered state. Okay. One of the things about jhana is that it, it is a distinctly altered state and, and you, you slip into it without really noticing it, but if you pop out, it, it's very evident that you're in an altered state. So that's what I would be looking for. John? So I noticed that um, doing the phrases and then bringing people in and out of that, I recognize that sometimes it's easier where it almost feels like I have a handout, like I'm literally doing this mentally to make it like easing into this level of you know, protecting myself, I think, from, you know, deepening that where it's like what you were talking about, like between sympathy and empathy, like really making sure that I have a, it's almost a physical representation of a hand being like, wait, like, let me do this with these people. And then some that I can do without that boundary right and it feels very peaceful and i feel my back straightening and it feels very light and then the people that are more difficult that are the ones that i'm working on then i start seeing myself just further and further back into my own life and this child younger and younger and younger and younger who's myself until i'm sitting there next to myself in the hospital as a baby <laughs> looking 
looking and I'm probably generating it from a photograph, a yellowing photograph of me in a, in a little bassinet. Right. Uh, and then being like stable, you know, and then having to let that person go and say, well, I didn't do anything wrong. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then start generating it towards myself and then back out to the other people. It's very much like this. It's really, um, you know, I haven't fallen into a jhana state in I don't know how many years, right? But then that was just like, it was good. It was seeing that this progression of, of boundaries, really. So, I mean, that's kind of what was going on with me. Good. Someone else? All right. Um, so we have a, a weekend retreat coming up in April for the meditation and addiction material. Uh, the Tuesday night class and the Thursday night class. I'm going to be on retreat the first week of April, and so this class will not meet then. Um, let's see what the date of that is. Um, so April 8th, uh, I will be on, well, actually, I'll scratch that. I will actually be able to do that. Calendar is different. It's the Tuesday night I won't be able to do so I will be able to do this. Um, we're going to continue with uh, the compassion uh, material. We have uh, neutral people, difficult people, and all sentient beings left. Um, in June, I'm going to do a day long of compassion practice so we can do some intensive practice around this theme. Uh, also in June, I'm going to do a, a, a virtual retreat uh, so that uh, if you want to sign up for that, the registration is open to that. We do have some scholarships for that. Uh, so take a look at that. Um, in July, I'm going to start a new series of level one day longs. And that should be up on the website soon. So it'll be three in level one and then the uh, meditation and attachment for coupling. In September, I'm going to start another level two class. And then in December, I'm going to do a virtual, I think pretty Pretty sure it's going to be virtual, depends on how things go, uh, year-end retreat. So those are the things that are coming up for the rest of the year. Take a look at them. I offer this uh, teaching freely, but I do hope that you'll make a donation uh, to support me and also the work that Metagroup is doing. You can find a link for that on the website or in the email that we sent out. Thank you for coming, and, and we'll see you soon on the path, I hope. Bye now. Thanks, George. Bye. See you later.